scripture this morning is Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. I love those important words that we say there. This is the word of God. If you're wondering about the power of this service together, it's not in us, uh, it's in that word that forms us and fuels us forward. And that word is a word that also signals to us that. Uh, While we're not standing up and singing, we have not stopped worshiping, and we're still to continue to worship as we sit under the Word of God. One pastor said that we Christians in America today are walking through pressures, temptations, strife, and exhaustion such as I've never seen before. And we have only one way forward. Our Lord above is calling us to a deeper place with Himself and with one another. Our times demand shared resilience, steadfastness, and solidarity together. The the worst thing to do right now is to drift apart. The best thing to do is strengthen our relationships for Jesus' sake. And then together, we'll be able to face any future by God's grace. Man, that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Like, what do we need together in the midst of our times that we're in that God has appointed for us and for us together is that we share this uh, resiliency together, a, a steadfastness, a solidarity with one another. The worst thing, he says, is to drift apart, but the best thing is to strengthen our relationships with one another for Jesus' sake. That seems to be getting at what Paul has been getting at in chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, doesn't it? This, this beautiful community, this glorious community that stands together as one for Jesus' sake. But I have to ask, is there a problem with what he's saying there? He proposes one I think that we would all maybe agree with or at least would maybe sense as something that's all too real and present. He says we're lousy at staying friends. Our love doesn't last. We fragment too easily. We walk away too quickly. We stand aloof too stubbornly. And how can he face the opposition of an adversarial world when we can't even get along together as Christians? The beautiful and glorious reality that he talks about that helps us move forward to any future together by God's grace also has an issue, and it's us. One that we can square with, though. So how do we move forward? If we have this great and glorious reality that's out in front of us that we can have together, and then we have this problem that's in us, what do we do? How do we move forward? I think that we couldn't get any better than to see Paul's words rightly from Romans 15. And here's, here's the command from this verse that controls the, the concluding section of all of this community talk that he's been giving. In 14 and 15, this command goes through it all and sums up all. He says in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
That's how we move forward. We want to move forward into where we're moving by God's grace into any future that is in front of us together. We do it by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Now, Paul has been instructing both the strong and the weak how to live together in harmony as one body, as this unity in Christ Jesus to a watching world. And he is directed in this section, chapter 14 and 15, he's directed a lot specifically at the strong, saying to them, even though we saw this last week, that you specifically, if you're strong, you have an obligation. The, the burden is on you to bear with the failings of the weak. So he directed some at the strong and says there's an, a particular obligation for them. But he wants to look as the, at the community as a whole and say, strong and weak, Jew and Gentile, whoever you are, you are not to be in doubt as to what you as a diverse group of saints together are to do. And what are they to do? Verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Strong and weak. Jew and Gentile, those with different backgrounds, those with different uh, consciences, those with different cultures that they were brought up in, those with different temptations and strengths, those with different uh, habits of eating or abstaining, all of them, here's what they are to do with all their opinions and views and convictions, they are to welcome one another. Now this welcome here is not just a greeting and a side hug at the door. It's not a greeting that is just however they want it to look. Right? He, he, he puts some specificity to it, doesn't he? He says, welcome one another, and he doesn't just leave a blank check for that. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And we could spend the rest of eternity looking in that. How has Christ welcomed you? Well, we see through the book of Romans in chapter 3, 23, there are these people who had fallen short of the glory of God, and then in verse 24, but they're justified by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That's a welcome. Or in chapter 5, he talks about those who are weak and ungodly, who are enemies who have been reconciled to him, to God, by the death of his son. He's taken those who are distant and he unites them to himself. He takes those who are under the condemnation, the just condemnation of God, and he says, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for you. He's taken those who were orphaned ones, serving other fathers, and he adopted them into his own family, calling them sons of the living God. He's taken those with only inheritance that they had was the inheritance of God's wrath and judgment that they deserved. And he says, now you're going to be co-heirs with Christ now. So that's not just something that I'm going to welcome you into. Once you're going to be welcomed into it for all eternity. Those who God was against in chapter 1 in Christ Jesus are those that he's for. And he then asks us these great questions. If he's for you, could he ever be against you again? No, his for you is so much a for you that nothing could be against you truly. And that it's so for you that he will not then spare giving you anything that you need for this life, and including intercession for you and no separation from his love no matter what happens. That's the kind of welcome. It's the welcome that he gives to the prodigal son, right? When he sees him a long way off, he, he doesn't have him come to him groveling. It's the welcome that runs to him and wraps him in a hug and puts the, the best on him. It says, let's go throw a party and have fun. It's the, the welcome that he gives when there's a woman who has this issue of blood after many years and money and doctors can't ever fix it, comes up and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And what welcome does he give her? He turns around and he finds her and he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. It's the welcome that he gives to the 5,000 who come to him. And, and he himself is saying, hey, let's give them something to eat. And he lays the table of, of bread and fish before them because they were those who were like people, sheep without a shepherd. It's the, the welcome he gives to the leper who just runs up to him in desperation and says, I, I think if you will, you can make me clean. He says, 
I will, and be clean. It's the welcome that he gives to the little children. He says, let them come to me. That's the kind of welcome of Jesus. He, he takes those who are far off and he brings them near. He takes those who can't come to him and he goes to them. Do you know this welcome? That, that knowing of that welcome of, of your own lives is going to change how you're going to view all the rest of this and it's going to change how you viewed any of the stuff that's towards the strong in the weak so far. Because we're to welcome as Christ has welcomed us. Do you know that welcome? It's a welcome that's extended to enemies, to strangers and sinners by the grace of God. It's a welcome that takes orphans and makes them sons, takes those who are sold under sin and redeems them, paying the price for them that they might be slaves to righteousness. It's those who have no belonging, now belonging forever. It's those who have no place at the table, now having a place at the table. Those with no inheritance, now having an eternal inheritance. And in Romans, what we've done is the long, hard work of working out how this welcome comes to us and knowing this welcome ourselves. And what Paul is pleading for here is to say, now that you know what this welcome looks like, chapters 1 through 11, please don't stop there. Please let that welcome then change and transform your lives with one another. Don't let that welcome stop. Let's keep that welcome going in your collective life together. And when he says welcome as Christ has welcomed you, we could come at Jesus' welcome as saints in a number of ways. But let me suggest a few that maybe kind of help us think about how we should welcome others. So think about it in terms of distance, cost, and time. His welcome, it's distance between God and us and this distance he covers. It's the far off that he draws near, and it's the far off in a number of ways, not just in physical distance. It's the difference of desire. It's the difference of, of uh, wanting to be with God. It's the difference of God and man, of, of saint and sinner. It's all those kind of differences that he covers. And he's the one who does it. He pursues. He makes up the distance, right? Think of the prodigal son. He, he doesn't have the son, doesn't come all the way to him. He goes and meets him. After squandering this living, this inheritance that he'd given him, he goes and meets him. That's the kind of distance that is covered. He pursues. He goes after. He covers the distance. It's costly. And he pays it. There's distance and he covers it. It's costly and he pays it. There is no justification, no right standing with God apart from a propitiation, turning away of God's anger and wrath from sin. There's no redemption without ransom. You can't be brought near to God apart from blood. You can only be brought near by blood. And Christ pays that. Think of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan, the one who goes to the one who's wounded on the side of the road, and he binds his wounds. He pays what's necessary for him to get healthy and right. And it's a welcome over time that he endures. Think about Paul. He, he speaks in Romans chapter 7 as one who's redeemed, but still in the flesh. One who wants some good things and yet the flesh remains. And so some of the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. And some of the things he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. That kind of thing. And, and yet in the midst of that, what does he cry out to? Who does he call out to? Who's going to save me here? Who's going to help me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus is the one who can deliver us 
Right? It's not just a redemption once. It's not just salvation that has happened and now has passed. It's not a welcome that has been welcomed and now it has moved on. It's a continual welcome. He's doing this over time. In other words, Christ is looking at Paul would be patiently enduring him because Paul is one who is still right in the middle of his need for transformation. So he can come and say in chapter 12, verse 2, you need the renewal of your mind. It's not over yet. You, you need continue. And we have a Christ who continues to welcome us. He's patient. Think about the disciples that he, he draws in. Man, they, he had to endure a lot with them alone. Like his close community, he endures so much from them. Like, are you, are you think about this. Like he's telling them, he's nearing the end of his life, and he says, hey, where I'm going, you can't go. Philip's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He's like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All right, Thomas said that. All right, Philip, Philip is the one who says, show us the Father, and that's enough. And man, you, you can't imagine a sigh came out of Jesus a little bit there, like, have you been with me so long? You've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God revealed. So he's patiently enduring. It's a welcome over time. And I think this might help us think about how to walk out this obedience to this command in verse 7 as we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. It means that there's distance between us that needs to be covered. There are all kinds of distances, right? There might be some physical things, but like think about all the differences that he's been talking about. Strong and weak, convictions, conscience, like opinions about how things are, are to be done or how we're to do things. And he wouldn't have to give this command if those things didn't exist. If everything was easy and uniform, there wouldn't be a need to say, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. But they're not. There's distance. And he's telling Christians, cover the distance. Move toward one another in the midst of those things. And so what we need to know is not everyone is like us. Not everyone has the same convictions that we have. And we need to move towards those who are different than us and welcome them as Christ has welcomed us. Not everyone in this room is in your home group. So the only people to welcome aren't the hosts that you know that are in your hunger. They are one another, the people in this room. Not, not everyone is going to do the same activities that we do, so we have some commonality that's already there to talk about. Not everyone is going to have the, the same amount of, of kids that we do, right? Or kids at all. Not everyone is married. Like, there's all these kinds of diversities, and what are we to do in the midst of those things? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Not stay apart and only do the things that are easy and comfortable for you to do. Not only share relationships with those that are in your group, not only share relationships with those who have the same amount of kids as you, same age as you, not only those who are married, or like, we're not just doing that, we're not segregating off parts of this, we're to welcome another as Christ has welcomed us. And the command to welcome one another, what it does is it splits right through the distance of all of those things that we could have and hold together, and it just moves toward one another, especially it moves towards the one who is different. Or this command wouldn't need to exist. The... the people that it's not natural to move to are the people that this command speaks us to move to, commands us to move to. These are the people that this command directs us to. So Christian, are, are there people in this room that, that you, need to, you need to make a beeline for after this because you've been ignoring them or because you just haven't made a, a connection with them? Maybe there's some difference. There's some people you need to Find out, seek out, and go towards them and welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. Because the church, the church is the people of God who gather together for the glory of God. This is not another place for activity-based friendships. It's not why we exist. That's not who we are. That's not our identity. That's not central to us. We are not the place, another place, for activity-based friendships punctuated by brief conversations with others that have everything just in common with us. 
This is the place for Christ-centered, deep and diverse relationships where Jesus has welcomed us. And so all of a sudden we're like, we can turn around and welcome others. That's the church. You might remember the movie, Remember the Titans. It kind of chronicles a football team dealing with like a... Their kind of desegregation in their integrated school and, and it centers on this football team as they come back together, black and white, and the, all the issues of race surrounding the time and, and what, how they deal with it. And, and in the movie, one of the stars of the movie, the star linebacker, Gary, he gets in a car wreck and, and he says in the hospital, I don't know the, how factual this is, but in the movie, in the hospital, he's like, he won't see anybody uh, but his friend Julius. And Julius, Gary's white, and Julius is black, right? And they become great friends in the midst of, of this movie. And he says, he won't see anybody but Julius. And, and Julius comes in, and the nurse is in the hospital room. Do you remember the scene? And she looks at him and says, hey, no one is allowed in here except for kin, you know, except for family. And, and Gary, from the hospital bed, says, hey, d- don't you recognize him? He's my brother. Don't you see the resemblance? That's what the world ought to be able to say to us. They ought to be able to look in here and say, hey, hey, no one is allowed in here except for family. We ought to be able to look at one another and, and all sorts of differences and distinctions between us. And we ought to be able to say, hey, don't you see the resemblance? They're my brother. They're my sister. Why? Because we're all looking to Christ and we all look so much alike in that way that we're all saying Christ is everything to us. Our, our differences are vast. When we go to the table, some of us are eating meat and some of us are not. Some of us have convictions about certain things that others don't have. And yet we can still look them in the eye and say, I see the resemblance. And we can turn to others and say, don't you see the resemblance? That's my family. That's what Paul is getting at. That's the kind of welcome we extend out to one another. And that welcome might be costly. It's going to disrupt your eating habits, isn't it? It's going to disrupt how you do some normal things sometimes. It's going to require your consideration. Should I eat or should I not? Should I drink or should I not? It's going to require some thought to give to others. It's going to take your energy It's going to cost you energy and time as you invest in in a relationship that's not super easy. It's going to change. If you invite these kind of men and welcome them into your group, into your life, it's going to change your family dynamics some. It's going to change your group dynamics. It's going to make it a little bit different. It's going to make messy in all kinds of different ways. And none of that changes the command that Paul has just plainly given to the church. Welcome one another's Christ has welcomed you. And so we're going to need to step out and invite people in. Not just with a greeting and a side hug, glad you're here, but with actually bringing them to a place at the table with us, to a a, a place in the family with us. We'll need to treat people, not as they deserve, because that's not how Christ welcomed us. We'll need to treat people with grace, because that's how Christ welcomes us, graciously. And that welcome is going to need to be extended repeatedly. Unity is hard won. Growth. If we're moving from weak to strong, that's slow work. It's a slow process. Deep relationships take a lot of time. And so we're going to need patient endurance with one another. The, Jesus says, like, they come and ask him, like, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? Seventy-seven, like, 77 times, seven times. Right? A lot of times, many times. Think about the welcome that's included just in that. He sins against you, he repents 77 times in a day. And he comes to you and you have to welcome him again and again. And again, in other words, that's a, that's a hard, long, slow process. Or I'm so encouraged by the disciples. Jesus, he welcomes them in on, on this Thursday night before he's uh, killed and betrayed. And he sets a table before them, right? The Lord's Supper. And he washes their feet. What a welcome. 
He washes their feet and he instructs them and he speaks to them and he tries to encourage them and he sings a song with them. Like, what a welcome. And then you know what happens then? They all abandon him. One of them betrayed him. Another one denies him three times. That's a pretty bad response. And yet, what do we see at the end? I love this in John 21. After having washed their feet and them abandoned him, here he comes to the beach. And he welcomes them again. He sets a table before them, feeds them breakfast. Here's what this welcome is going to require at times. We're going to wash feet and then be mistreated and still need to get up and provide breakfast over a charcoal fire the next day. And we're going to need that of others too. That's what Christ does for us. But if we're all determined to do that, think of what kind of community that creates. How beautiful and glorious that is if we're saying, I'm going to welcome you like that, and you're saying, I'm going to welcome you like that. And all of a sudden, we're moving together in all kinds of beautiful ways. It creates this safe community where we can be the Peters who really blow it big and then still come back and say, no, I love you. I'm in. I'll do anything for you. And so we'll tend to the sheep. That's a community where, where no one is waiting on the other one to, to make the first move. A community where we're all saying, I'm making the first move towards you. You're different from me, I'm moving to you. And that is the kind of community that displays glory. What that first might be is it might be a first move of confession. And I've blown it. I haven't loved you, I haven't pursued you, I haven't welcomed you, or I've thought these things about you and I just want to confess and just lay these things down. It might be first like a, a weeping embrace more than other things before we get into deeper relationship. It, it might be more the, of, uh, hey, I'm so sorry, I haven't even learned your name. Would you please forgive me? I want to know it now. An introduction just to start and get moving, but don't wait. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And look what the motive he gives for it. Verse 7, for the glory of God. The ultimate motive here is not the other. It's not yourself. It's not unity. All those things are good. They should be part of the motivation, but not the ultimate motivation, not the primary motivation. All those things can fade. If I'm doing it just for you, well, sometimes that's going to, you know, come and go. If I'm doing it for me, like, my moods will change day to day. If I'm doing it just for unity's sake, well, unity can, can be hard won, so maybe it doesn't seem worth it that day. But here's what we're to be doing it for, for the glory of God. And here's what Paul is getting at here. When we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of Christ, what we can do is that we can look in on this community from the outside and say, God's glory is displayed there. Right? You can see God's glory in, in the mountains. Love the mountains. They are glorious. Thank you, God, for making them. You, you can see it in the sky, in, in the stars, and the things that he has made. And you should be able to open the door on a Sunday morning, walk in here and see God's glory. Just by looking around. That's what Paul's getting at. Like heaven has come down to earth. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. We are a display together of the glory of God. That's how we're to welcome one another. And that's why Christ came. He came to save a people, not an individual, this is not just about you. He came to save a people. He's always been about saving a people. And this people that he is saving is a diverse people for God's glory. Look in verse 8. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He, Christ became a servant. Think Philippians chapter 2 here. 
that he emptied himself, that he became a servant, taking the form of a servant by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That kind of service, that's what he's getting at. That's the servant that Jesus is. And to see an example of welcome, we can look to Christ, of one who's living for the glory of God. And in that example, we see one who's embracing others embracing those who are different for God's glory. And that's Jesus, right? He's the one who becomes a servant to the point of death on a cross in order to embrace those who are far off. See, he's confirming, verse 8, the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember chapter 1, verse 16? That is kind of like the, the theme, the thesis for all of Romans that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. To who? To the Jew first, and he doesn't stop there, and also, and also to the Greek, it's to both of them. And Jesus, what is he doing? He displays God's covenant faithfulness to Israel by becoming their Messiah, their Savior. We covered a lot of that in Romans chapter 11, right? You can look back and think back about that. God had made saving promises to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. He did it all the way back in Genesis. And Christ comes, and he is the fulfillment of these promises. There's this Messiah servant for Israel that's spoken of. He's spoken of in Isaiah. Think of the servant songs, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 42. There's a servant, Messiah, spoken of in that repeatedly. And Jesus comes, and he's the servant to the point of death, even death on a cross, to redeem, to save God's people. And, and guess who's part of that? Guess who's included in this? Not only is this Jesus, he confirms God's truthfulness and faithfulness to the patriarchs, to Abraham and, and Jacob. As the Messiah's servant, he brings salvation to those and in fulfillment of those. But while this salvation is for the circumcised, Paul says, it's also for the uncircumcised. It, it's for the Jew first and, and, notice the and, for the Greek. And there's an and in verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs, Romans 11, right? But that doesn't exclude the Gentiles. Rather, they're, they're included in this. And that, that wasn't just like a ricochet, like God was aiming at one people and it just kind of hit them and ricocheted off and hit another. That's not what's going on in God's plan and purposes here. Like the scope of Jesus' mission was to confirm promises to a particular people and to show mercy to a diverse people. So he's going after some and showing mercy to a diverse amount of people. Isaiah's servant is the one who in Isaiah 52, he sprinkles nations. Abraham's offspring was to be a blessing to all nations. Romans 4, 13, Abraham is this one who inherits the world, right? The promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world. What's coming through Christ, that the Gentiles are the ones who are also meant to receive the blessings of the Messiah who's come. And what does he bring as part of the blessings in his coming? The blessing of salvation, of reconciliation, of justification before a holy God. And Gentiles are meant to glorify God as those who are recipients of his mercy, he says. In other words, they're acknowledging in Christ Jesus that salvation is flowing to me, though I am undeserving of it. And then we are moving to then give glory to God from that place of mercy. And these, there's covenant promises to Israel and there's covenant mercy to Gentiles. In other words, both of them are recipients of God's covenant blessings, the blessing of salvation in Christ Jesus. A another way to say it 
is that in fulfillment of covenant promises to one nation, God is still aiming at the salvation for all nations. And that that was by design. Again, it wasn't just a ricochet as if God sent a a, a shot down to Israel and it happened to ricochet to the Gentiles. No, the design was I'm going after my people and that people is actually then going to be expanded to beyond just this particular people to people of all nations of the earth. And that that's by design. Look at what he says in verse 9. He's going to quote all sorts of things to say, hey, this is God's work. This is God's purpose. This was intent. And so in verse 9, he, he begins the Old Testament quotations. He says, as it is written. Now, Paul loves his Old Testament. He, he loves to read the scripture. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing your name. This is from likely, there's a few places that it, it, similar language, but likely, the most likely reference is from Psalm 18 here, verse 49. And the reference in, in the Psalm is where people of many nations are subdued under David and under his offspring. And Paul looks at that, that the nations being subdued under David and his offspring, like the people of God, the people of Israel. And he says that the fulfillment of that is through Jesus here. That's what Paul is getting at. The fulfillment is through Jesus. It's not of Jews reigning over Gentiles as the one great nation and kings over the Gentiles, but with the people, they're both Jew and Jew and Gentile, with Jesus as Lord, together as one body in Christ. That's the fulfillment of Psalm 18. The Jews and Gentiles as one body in Christ Jesus, doing what he said in verse 6, together with one voice, glorifying the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That fulfillment is in both Jews and Gentiles, singing forth the name of God. And he's saying that's what Jesus does to Jews and Greeks. When they look to him, all of a sudden we have the fulfillment of this beautiful thing in one body. Not in multiple nations, but one body, one people. Paul loves, again, the Old Testament. He starts to pile up more Old Testament passages that speak of this. So we move from Psalm 18 to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 10. He says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And this is an interesting reference too. It's very similar to Psalm 18. This is the song of Israel. You remember this? It's kind of like their national song. And it's a weird song because um, he pronounces in the song that they're to sing together all kinds of curses against them if they shouldn't be obedient to it. And he kind of has already told them, you're not going to be obedient to it. So it's a, it's a strange song to kind of be their song, but he has them sing this song. And in this song, it's a song that, that prophesies their own disobedience and the curses that are going to fall on them, that the judgment is going to come upon them. And he also predicts in there, there's prophecies in there of, of judgment being poured out on the nations too. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, as the song nears its end, there's the sound of hope that goes out as the call to rejoice is put there. And it's not just a call to rejoice For Israel the nation. It is a call to rejoice for the nation. It's a prediction just embedded in there that not only will Israel have this time when they come back and rejoice, they repent and rejoice, but of nations be bowing before this one true living God. It's a picture of salvation has come through judgment. Judgment has passed and now we're on the other side of it looking in salvation upon the Lord and there's worship. He says again in verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117, where Gentiles are invited to join the song. Not just one nation, nations are invited to join the song. And this is verse 7's, like it's its peak 
fulfillment right here. Verse 7, welcome one another as Christ is welcomed to you for the glory of God. And here we see it. When Gentiles and peoples extol the one true living God. And with praising, within this praising host, Paul envisions both Jewish voices and Gentile voices together as one. This praise is voiced and it's directed, right? It's actually spoken out and it's directed to the one true living God. This is necessary, both of them, that we see that this God is Lord and that we actually proclaim it, confess. Remember in chapter 10, verse 14, it says, well, how are they to confess and believe in the one they've never heard of? They're to hear of him and to know who it is, where they're directing their praise. It doesn't go anywhere and they're to actually confess it out loud. That this is the one true living God, that he is Lord. Both of those are necessary. And here's what Paul's getting at, that the nations are in on it. Uh, diverse people are in on this. And they're voicing their praise to the one true living God. So what he's moving everybody toward in their hearing of these verses is he's saying that Christ was the promised one. He was the sent one. And he had this purpose, not just of landing uh, in salvation for salvation of the Jews, but landing for salvation of nations and that them being affected and drawn together in one under this one true Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives one last reference in verse 12. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Again, very similar references as some of the other ones were. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, it's familiar verse, especially around Christmas time, it talks about a stump. A stump is not a good picture, right? No one wants to be said, like, you're a stump of a man. You're a stump of a nation. Like, that. Uh, I think is insulting in multiple ways. Or if you're thinking about a kingdom, you want to be a giant oak tree of a kingdom. You want to be a giant oak of a person. You want to be a giant oak of a kingdom. And he says, here, look at this kingdom. It's a stump. It's been chopped down. That's not a good picture. It's a picture of judgment. And, and he says, from that stump is going to come a shoot that's going to bear fruit. And, and then verse 10, he says this, that the root of Jesse is going to come. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles. It, it's interesting. In, in Isaiah, in 1, there's a shoot. And in verse 10, there's a root. In other words, the one who's coming that's promised there in Isaiah is the one who is coming and the one who was before. The one who's bearing fruit actively, but the one who was sustaining the whole thing from the beginning. That's Jesus. And transformation happens because no nation is going to look at a stump and put their hope in the stump. But the root comes. Sustaining life. Shooting forth fruit out of a shoot. And what do the nations do? In him, the Gentiles hope. Transformation has happened through this root shoot that has come. And again, notice again, this is same thing that all these other ones, there, there's submission to the rule of this promised one here. But Paul sees the fulfillment of them, their submission to the rule of this promised Messiah, not primarily in the Gentiles being ruled by a sword 
He sees fulfillment in the Gentiles looking to Christ in hope. We're saying we're putting all our hope in him. In other words, salvation has come to them by trusting fully in this Messiah, trusting fully in Jesus. And in there, then they're being ruled rightly. They're underneath the headship and lordship of Christ rightly. That's the fulfillment that he talks about. They submit not under sword, but under salvation. And so... What Paul does is he looks to the Old Testament and says the sum total of Paul's references here, he looks at all the sum total of the Old Testament and he, and he says, this is being fulfilled. He looks at the law. Notice the uh, references, the law and the prophets and the writings. That's how the, the Jews would have divided their Old Testament. And we have law, Deuteronomy, he references that. Uh, prophets, Isaiah, and he's got one there. Writings, a couple from the Psalms. He's got one there. And so he's looking at the Old Testament. He says, all of that was looking forward to Christ. And his work that's going on in your midst, as you as one people welcome one another as he's welcomed you, is the fulfillment of the things that the Old Testament has been talking about. That God is magnified in Christ as the yes and amen to all of his promises. He's the one who came and showed God's covenant faithfulness. And that covenant faithfulness is a faithfulness that was to be displayed for both Jews and Gentiles. One pastor says it this way, that Jesus' mission, the mission of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah's mission was to build one church of Jew and Gentile. That we fellowship in the Christian church across boundaries of difference. And that that fellowship, those fellowship relations are rooted in the mission of Christ as revealed in the scripture of the Old Testament. The way we are able to fellowship across all these differences and diversities is because of the mission of Jesus as it is revealed in the scriptures. That the sum of the Old Testament here that Paul is getting at is displayed in Christ's welcome of both Jews and Gentiles as one. And our welcome of one another in light of that welcome is what displays what Christ has come to do. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us as one people, one voice praising the Lord for one in the glory of God. Our welcome of one another, our welcome uh, uh, as one voice and sending up our praise to God is a display of God's covenant faithfulness, of his fulfillment of these promises that he's given in the sum of the Old Testament. And what Paul is doing is that he's using the purpose and intent for which Christ came and obtaining a diverse people to reassert the command that he gave in verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Look at his intent and purpose. It was to welcome these people of all these nations. And so if you're struggling to embrace others as one people, if you're looking around and thinking, I don't know if I can welcome them as Christ has welcomed us, then you're missing the very heart of God that was displayed in Christ Jesus who came for people who are near and for people who are far off. He was all about having a diverse people. That was the intent and purpose of the sending of Christ. And his intent was not just to have them as a diverse people, but to have them as a diverse people as one body in Christ. All of them saying, Christ is Lord and praising, literally voicing out the praises to this one true living God. One body praising the Lord was not just a happy consequence. That was the intent. Jews and Gentiles, a diverse people praising God, wasn't a happy consequence of Christ being great. It was the very purpose for which Christ came. It's what God set out to do. He promised, right? He, Paul looks at him. He's like, well, you want to go to the law? Look what God promised. You want to go to the prophets? Look at what God promised. You want to go to the writings? Look what God promised. He promised these things, and he obtained it. 
through Christ. Paul, in a sense, is saying, like, look around, church. You're the fulfillment of the promise. You, you saints who are in Rome or Jews and Greeks that are all together as one, crying out the praises of God. You are the fulfillment of the promise. God set out to do it, and he got it. It's in your midst. And so welcome one another. Christ has welcomed you. The church, as a diverse people of God, putting all their hope in Christ, is the location of God's fulfilled promises. Through Christ, we are that people. And so as Jew and Gentile put their hope in Christ, they fulfill what God set out to do. That is, the, the church is to look around and say, look what God has accomplished. He promised it and he's gotten it. And the reality of those promises, the reality of those purposes coming to life, being accomplished in their midst as the people of God, as a church, ought to give them hope. And it's that kind of hope that Paul ropes into this final prayer that ends this large section. It says in verse 13, he prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope is the, the future just lighting up the present. The certainty of what's to come just lighting up the present, reaching into the present, and we're living in light of that. And as the church, as a display and displays God's truthfulness and covenant faithfulness and, and his uh, true word, that he is the one who keeps his promises, as the church displays that, they show again and again and again in their life together that God accomplishes his purpose, that God gets what he promises, that he's faithful to everything. And they're showing in the midst of that that he is a God who holds past and present and future. He, he predicted it. He got it. We're marching toward his future. We're showing forth that. And so beholding this God, knowing this God, generates hope. And God is both the source of hope and the producer of it. This is the God of hope. Hope, this future lighting up the present from this God of hope to his people, it starts to radiate out. And he says it radiates out into joy and peace. May that God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. There's no setting aside, right? We've been talking a lot about harmony and unity and living together as one, as a people of God, but he hasn't then set aside, like, forget about the gospel and make sure you get this right. No, there's no setting aside of doctrine. Hey, if you have to kind of, uh, you know, mess with the numbers over here in order to have unity, do it. If you have to kind of alter truth to get this harmony, do it. There's no setting aside any of those things for the sake of peace and unity. Look what he says. It's joy and peace in believing. We don't set the believing aside. That's, that's right truth, right doctrine, trusting in the right things. Like Paul is not saying, you know what, forget about a lot of that I said earlier. If you've already got that, just move on and let's be one. No, no, no. Like I gave you 11 chapters, church. And in believing those things, there's joy and peace. Like in trusting in those things, there's joy and peace. There's no setting aside of those things. There's those things and joy and peace and fellowship with one another. Peace and joy, they radiate from this God of hope in believing. So what we're doing is, is the words to be this people of God who are holding tightly to the truth. And at the same time, we're holding tightly to one another. And we don't let go of either one, ever. That's what he's getting at, right? You keep a hold of all of these things. Joy and peace, they, they come from the welcome we've received from Christ and they come in our welcome of one another as Christ has welcomed us. And the ultimate end of this joy and peace in believing is that the people of God 
abound in hope. He says, so that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The kind of hope that he speaks of here is an otherworldly hope, isn't it? If, it's, if you can have a hope that you can obtain, then that's not the hope he's talking about. Whatever hope you can come up with and get is not the hope that he's talking about here in the midst of the people of God. This is a Holy Spirit hope. It only comes from him and from his power. And he wants that kind of hope, that kind of future reaching into the present, so steady and so secure that you can say that it's abounding. And that abounding is this sense that we're walking in the reality that God has already accomplished. That we trust that he is the one who holds all things in his hands and that he holds us in his hands. And we're just walking in the reality of that, of this God who fulfills his promises over and over again in Christ. And what that does, that kind of hope does, is it hits and explodes among the people of God so that they are have this fellowship with one another where they could say of their gathering that that is a people who abounds in hope. Like we don't accomplish that. God does. God God purposed that. He accomplished that and he's accomplishing that in the midst of his people, in the midst of the church. And the realization of that in the midst of of this church is a realization in individuals and in us as a church together. And Paul says that only comes by the Spirit. Paul, in this section, in in chapter 15, he, he prays a few times. And he even prays to end this section. In other words, it seems as if I hate this harmony and unity that I've been talking about here, that's only accomplished by God. Paul encourages, exhorts, but he's saying even in these prayers that he's giving, yeah, I'm relying on God to provide that. Yeah, I'm relying on God to to sustain that. Yeah, it's going to have to be God who's faithful in order for that to take place in your midst. And that he prays to end this section I think is instructive. He starts this section saying this is for the glory of God. And he ends with prayer, with God as the source and power of what he wants to see accomplished. From first to last, if we're to be the people that God wants us to be, it's going to have to be because we're reliant upon him to provide it, on him to sustain it. We're not just going to go and get it. We're going to need him to work it in us and through us and move us towards one another for that to take place. And God can do that, right? God is the one who said, look at what I've promised. Look at what I've fulfilled. Look at how I welcomed you. Look at how I sought you. Look at how I obtained you. It's as if he could tell them, Romans, look around the room. God is faithful. He's powerful. The gospel is on display and it's salvation of you people that look around the room. There's Jews and Greeks there, right? I intended that and that's the power of my gospel on display in your lives. And we could look around and say the exact same thing. Oh, we have a diverse amount of people? That's a display of the power and the glory of God in our midst. And so, yeah, we're looking to him to sustain it. Yeah, we're looking on him to provide it in our midst. But this is the God who can do it and is doing it. And the Holy Spirit so works on God's people so as to shine the light on all that God has done. We become this people who are sure that he can produce these kinds of things. That's the people of hope. Let me just ask you, are you abounding in hope today? I do not hear people talk like that. Our world is not a world that seems like a place that's abounding in hope. But we can be. And we don't look inward for that. 
I don't want us to look across the room for that. We trust God for that. This is the God of hope. This is the one who can make us abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that hope will make us look around at a diverse group of people from whom there's distance between us and them and it'll make us move toward one another. It, it'll give us the kind of hope that just realizes again and again we've been welcomed by Christ. We've been welcomed by Christ. And it'll move us in welcome towards one another. The, the worst thing we can do in a world that doesn't seem to be a place of abounding hope is drift apart. And the best thing we can do is welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us and face that future together with the hope from this God of hope as a people of hope. An otherworldly reality that's taking place here and now in our midst so that the world that has no hope can look at us and say, man, heaven seems to have landed here. That's the hope we can live into. And by Paul's instructive comment in verse 13, that's the hope we need to pray for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you welcomed us. Lord, we were your enemies and you welcomed us. And you've called us to welcome each other just as you welcomed us. Lord, this is impossible for us to achieve. Apart from your strength, it is disruptive to our core. And unless our core has been changed, Lord, we, we can't do it. And there's great freedom in that truth, Lord, because there's no question that we depend on you for this. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that all of us would see this, Lord, that we would acknowledge our dependence on you for this command that is too much for us. God, there are so many opportunities for us to divide, so many hills that are not worth dying on, and it's so tempting to make compromises on that level for unity's sake. We see it in our culture. We see it in our churches. And Lord, you've not called us to be united for unity's sake. You've called us to be united for Christ's sake. So help us understand the difference, Lord, and to strive to lay down those things that divide us that ultimately don't matter and to take up the things, Lord, that do to live our lives for your glory, to put ourselves off, even in our freedoms, for the sake of each other. That, Lord, as Dylan said, when people come into this place, when people see us go out from this place, Lord, they would see something that glorifies you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.